prayer, and then we'll have our lesson for tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that you're so patient and long-suffering with us, that you never give up on us, that your love never fails. Thank you that you're always standing by with a desire and you're actively working to get us to a point where we'll allow you to bring about some growth and some transformation in our lives, which is your plan for us, that we would change, that we would become more like your son. Thank you that you're so patient, though, in that process. Pray that we would see that it's only for our benefit, that we would, we would thrive if we would allow you to do that in a spiritual sense, and pray that we would see that because you're for us and you're always wanting what is best for us, that we can trust you and allow you to direct and lead, even in the places that we've been holding back, the things that we've been reserving, the things that we've been boxing you out of. Pray that we would open, open ourselves up in a sense and, and let you into every aspect of our lives and let you direct and lead and, and give us guidance with all of those things and not, and not hold back anything. Pray that even as we think about worshiping you, that we would see who you are, that we could know you, and that as we know you and we see you for who you are, that we would be convinced that you're worthy of our faith, that you're worth trusting, that we, you're worthy of our worship, that you're worthy of being exalted and lifted up, even that that could be the desire of our lives, that we would allow you to work in and through us so that we could be lights for you. Pray for a lot of the youth events that are coming up here in short order, whether it's vacation Bible school, it's a retreat that's coming up on the 22nd, it's other youth activities that are in the planned, it's lake days that are in the plans for the summer, it's, it's Bible camps for this summer. Pray that you just undertake, even with the Truth for Youth activities that are going on tonight, the Sunday school activities, the youth group uh, meeting every third Sunday, that you just undertake with all those things that you would help to convince our young people that you're real, that you're worth, again, trusting, and just as you need to convince us of that. Pray that we would be prayerful about these things, that we would want to open up the doors of our lives, so to speak, to you, and just let you run free with it. Thank you that we have this time to gather, even a building to keep the rain off of us. Thank you for all that you've provided, and pray that you would undertake to use what is said for your honor and glory here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not going to be the last one there tonight. All right. Well, the title of tonight's message is Seeking Your Face. Seeking Your Face. As you think about the Bible in general and the things that God is promoting through His revealed word, His revealed truth to mankind, you could think of the Bible generally, or it could be described, as God's love letter to mankind. God's revelation of who he is and how much he cares about people and then conversely what he's done to bring us to a point through his grace that we could see apart from him we're hopeless but through him he's made a way. He's made a way for every facet of our lives, our past, the present, our future so that we could live lives that would be beneficial to us and pleasing 
to him. And so if you think about a letter or a story that he would set, set out to write and communicate to us, it was for our good because he cares so much about us. And you see, God undertook through the story of the Bible to reveal many divine truths. And one special or specific category involves his revelation concerning himself and his desire to have a personal relationship with each individual person on every man, woman, and child on planet Earth, all of mankind. You see, he reveals himself, but he, in doing so, he reveals this desire to have this personal relationship with you and I. And that's one category of the divine truth that God saw fit to reveal through the story of the Bible and the narrative of the Bible. See, the more you learn about him as you're thinking about, well, why did God do that? Why did God want us to know more about himself? Why did he want us to realize that he wants to have this personal relationship with us? Well, it's so that we could thrive in life in a way that would include him, that in a way that ultimately would bring him honor and glory, even though we don't necessarily have to understand why it would please God to live lives with us. I mean, if we're being honest, we would say, and we were being fair about ourselves, we would say, what about living life with me could possibly be pleasing to God? Well, in a sense, it's not, it's not the you that's operating by your nature, by being driven by your, your sin nature, being driven by self-centeredness and selfishness that God's interested in. It's the you that is willing to respond to his love and his grace and his mercy and his provision even in our dispensation here of his spirit living inside of us so that we could live lives or become something different than we are by nature. And that's something that God wants to experience then when we're operating, we're having our present state of being, our present way of thinking, our present mindset being directed and focused on Him, being led by His Spirit. In that mindset, when we're, we're in that place, God wants to then have that intimate fellowship with us. He wants to have that intimacy with us as we go through life when we're operating in that sphere. So God determined that that would please Him, that would bring Him glory, that us living to lift him up or magnify him, being light bearers for him, that that would be pleasing to him as it would expand the scope of or to put him into or put him in front of the various people that he was interested in drawing to himself or attracting to himself with the light of the glorious gospel. And so as we're thinking about this, uh, why would he start by revealing himself? Well, one of the benefits of him revealing himself to us is that the more you learn about him, the more you should desire to enjoy that relationship that he also has or wants to have with us. So there's sort of two parts to it there. One, he reveals himself, but not just for no reason. One is so that we could know him, but there's a secondary aspect to that, that in knowing him or by knowing him, we would desire more and more to experience life with him, to enjoy that fellowship that he desires to have with us. And so you think about spiritual growth, this sort of represents the natural progression of spiritual growth as we learn more. As we learn more, we desire to involve him, include him, draw nearer to him, have that intimacy, have that fellowship, have that relationship, have that closeness with him. And there's how growth happens. We, we learn more about him and that causes us to want to e even know more and to want to spend 
life with him. So as you think about that in this psalm, David, and we're talking now about Psalm 24 tonight, but in Psalm 24, David discusses the character of God. He starts with that. But then he moves on to the appropriate posture in which to approach God, and then he ends with the value of seeking and welcoming him into our lives, allowing him to be a part of our lives. So again, if you're not there, Psalm 24 is where we're going to be spending our time here tonight. So we're going to look at the character of God, the appropriate posture in approaching Him, or mentality, and then we're going to see the value of seeking and welcoming Him. That that's, that's God's desire because it's beneficial to us. So let's read it. It's not a very long psalm. Fit in well, considering that we had some other business here tonight. So we'll pick up with verse 1, and we'll read these 10 verses of Psalm 24. Now, Psalm 24, 1 starts with, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in His holy place? He who puts He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. There's where we get our title for tonight, Seeking Your Face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So it's an interesting psalm. It's an encouraging psalm. But it's a psalm that begins with this focus on who God is, his very character. So this first section, I have the superiority and supremacy of God as that's the aspect of God's character that David is focused in on in these couple of verses. So let's read just those first two verses again. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So the superiority and supremacy of God. So as you think about why would David bring this out? Why would he make this something that was the way he would introduce his ultimate objective or his main point? See, his main point was that we should seek God's face. We should include God in our lives. But he starts by talking about who God is. You see, knowing who God is is critical to experiencing the depth of relationship that He desires to have with you. The better you know someone, the better you are able to relate to them. And this is why there is so much value in learning God's attributes and characteristics. We've been doing we in a royal sense, but Mr. Falstrom, Eric Falstrom, as he's been filling in, he's been doing a series on the attributes and characteristics of God with what objective in mind? 
with the objective in mind that as we see him, as we learn more about him, as we get to know him, that we would be able to relate to him in a more intimate and personal way than we would if he was a stranger or he was somebody distant in our lives, somebody who wasn't close, somebody who we weren't spending time with, somebody who we weren't experiencing life with. And so there's the value of learning about our God. Now, David here in this passage, he's not talking about all of the characteristics of God or every aspect of the character of God. He's focused on the superiority and the supremacy of God. And he does that by making two main points. The first one is that everything originates with God, and that's actually we're going to see the second thing. The first one is that everything belongs to God. So everything belongs to God and everything originates with God. So we look at even verse 1 here of, tw- of chapter 24, of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's. And, and all the fullness or all the splendor of it, all of the essence of it, that is the Lord's. The world and those who dwell in therein, they are the Lord's. All of it. Not some of it. All of it is the Lord's. The earth and those who dwell therein therein. And I want to touch on that a little bit more, and so I'm just going to sort of move on to the next one, then we'll come back to that. But the second aspect of it is everything originates with God. Not everything is God's, but everything originates with God. And in in verse 2, he focuses on God is the one who founded it. Founded what? The world. He founded it, and of course we know men and women. He founded it in the sense of creating men and women in addition to creating everything else. And he focuses just on, he has just a poetic way of saying that. He has founded it, the world upon the seas, meaning he brought dry land out of, out of the water. He separated the water from land. He is like, he put an expanse. He put a canvas in the sky for the stars and he put lights in the sky as far as the moon and the, and the sun or the sun actually then, uh, the moon being a reflection of that. But as you think about that, God is the origin. Everything originates with God. And for he laid the earth's foundation is another version of this, another translation of that, of, of chapter, of verse 2 there. He laid the foundation. He laid the earth's foundation. And if you think about Genesis 1.1, it's a very summary statement of God's creative work or God's creative process. What does Genesis 1.1 say, in the beginning, kid, kids, God created the heavens and the earth. Good job. In the beginning, God created, created the heavens and the earth. He spoke into existence everything that was. That's not some of it, all of it, and he did it with just the sound, the, a, a spoken word, though he wouldn't have had to do that either, but yet he did that. Let there be, let there be, let there be. And the evening and the morning was the first day, and the evening and the morning was the second day, and so on and so forth. So everything originates with God, but then back to verse 1, everything again belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Now, as you think about that, I, I couldn't help but think about how this, some of the same language finds its way into the New Testament in terms of it expands on or makes it clear that Jesus Christ was a part of all of that in the sense of his specific role in all of it from the very beginning. As John even begins his gospel, within the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you think about 
Colossians, let's get some page turning. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Just because one of the biggest hang-ups, ultimately David, of course, being a king of the Israel, Israelite nation, king of the Jewish people, one of the most, if not the most famous, Saul, David, and then Solomon, and there's none bigger than those three. And as you think about that as, as a leader of a nation that ultimately, when they had the opportunity to respond to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, their biggest hang-up the number one issue that they had was denying the deity of Christ, that Christ was God, he was an equal part, he was co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, that the idea of a triune Godhead where Jesus Christ was fully God yet fully man, that was something that they ultimately caused them, many of them, to not believe. That's ultimately the thing that Paul talked about as we had gone through the book of Acts in kind of a summary fashion on some of our church fellowship nights. Often what he was trying to convince people of was that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, that he was God himself, that he was God became man. So Colossians chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. So by him we're talking about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. We're talking about Christ. All things were created through him and for him. Then verse 19, and he is before all things. And in him all things consist. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And I bring that out just in passing in the sense that as you think about even the fullness, it's mentioned even here as you think about the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Now you have the specific idea or connection that includes or expands on Jesus Christ's specific role as a part of the triune Godhead. And so then you're thinking about this relationship with Christ, this relationship with, with God. But if I'm in Christ positionally and he's in me in terms of his spirit living inside of me, and I have this sense of what he's done for me and I'm responding to his love for me that was demonstrated by both, by, of course, every aspect of the Godhead. It can't be separated. It's inseparable on one hand. And yet we look at the function or the responsibility that's associated with one or the other. And in any event, the love of God, both in sending Jesus Christ or being willing to separate or break up or split up for the Godhead so that Christ could die in behalf of, on behalf of sinners, the, the human aspect of the Messiah or the unique God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. And so as you think about the incarnated, incarnate Christ and his death on behalf of mankind, a lot of that comes back to the, fab the very fabric of the Godhead, though, and, it's in the, and the willingness to sacrifice or give up on behalf of sinners like you and I. And how, how could God's love be demonstrated either through the work of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, or the sacrifice of the rest of the Godhead in coming up with or providing a plan of rescue or redemption that came at such a great cost. Now, free to us, but at such a great cost to God in its undivided triune existence. And so as you think about Jesus, from the very beginning, he has an integral part in all of this. And as we think about, I belong to him. I'm a child of the king. I belong, I belong to him. I've been purchased with his blood. Uh, we talked about the purchased possession. Well, well, what was the cost in buying our freedom, buying us out of 
the bondage that we were in to sin, but the penalty that we owed because of our sin. Well, it was the death of, this, of Jesus, the death of the Father's Son, as He died in our place and shed His blood for you and I. So that's why I bring out this, even this connection going to the New Testament of Jesus Christ and even the sense that we belong, we belong to Him. Now, of particular importance or impact is the fact that you are the Lord. So you think about, okay, everything originates with God, okay. How about everything belongs to God? Okay, but the fact that creation belongs to God or inanimate objects belong to God or somebody else belongs to God or is identified with God or is his purchased possession, so what? This is the personal aspect of David's psalms as he's really focused on an individual level, but also nationally he's focused on the nation of Israel and their calling as a set-apart, sanctified nation that was intended to be a light or a reflection of God to even the Gentile nations around them. But David's focus is on a very specific personal application to this sense that I belong to the Lord. He is my creator and he is my God. So you see the focus even on that, or you maybe catch this little part where it says, everything is the Lord's, but it says, the world and those who dwell therein. The world and those who dwell therein. Now, as it relates to you and I, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's the part that starts to perk your ears a little bit. It's not just everything. It's, every, it's those who dwell on the earth of which I'm one. It's me that he's talking about as he writes this. And appreciating this reality or this dynamic, it affects your approach to God. It promotes a posture of humility and also reinforces his acceptance of you. So if I belong to him, there's a, that's a way of thinking about I'm accepted by him. I'm accepted in the beloved. I'm accepted in the one who is loved. But I'm a part of his family. So if I belong to him, I belong not in the sense of as chattel or as, uh, as property, but I, I belong in the sense that I'm a part of his family. I'm his child. And now I get to enjoy all of the blessings and the benefits that come from that positional relationship with him. So there's, you have to work your way toward that. But as you see that, one, if he's the creator of all things, shouldn't that make me humble? I mean, I can't even create a good, a good meal as I'm trying to cook. You know, and he's the creator of all things. He spoke, he spoke the world into existence. And so as I compare myself to that, shouldn't that make me stay small? as I'm thinking about how grand he is and how insignificant I am, shouldn't it be easy then to take in a verse that says our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God? And that where we're insufficient, he becomes the sufficiency we need as he works in us and empowers us and indwells us and can, can use us now in a way because he's the one undertaking, he's the one providing. He can now turn our lives into something absolutely and completely different and distinct from anything we would have ever dreamed up or anything that would have been possible through our own strength? Shouldn't that be easy when you think about the difference between you and him? You know, the, the, the separation in a sense in terms of importance and power and ability and, and the capability that God has. And so I hope one aspect of his humility, but I hope the other thing you see here in this idea that you belong to God as a part of his family, that you see the acceptance in that. You see you were created through him, but it says you were created for him. Think of that in Colossians 
1 there, when we read that passage. All things were created through him, and all things were created for him. He had, he created you with a purpose that you would bring him glory, that you would, you would be pleasing to him, that you could enjoy this relationship that would please him. And he created you with that desire in mind, and he wanted you to desire the same thing, that you would have a desire to know him, you would have a desire to elevate him, you would have a desire to serve him as you were responding to God moving first and God showing you how much he cared about you first and God undertaking for you first so we can respond to, we can love him because he first loved us. He demonstrated that in a way that was, you couldn't argue. There was no way to deny God's love for us because it was demonstrated in such an undeniable way through sending his son, Jesus Christ. So that's his desire. Now, as David starts with those first two verses, again, the idea there, as we see God for who he is, we see his superiority, we see his supremacy, we see even his acceptance of us, we see our purpose in being created, even in a way that would be pleasing to him or for that purpose in mind. And then we move on to how are we going to interact with the king? And are we going to seek God? How are we going to seek after God, or why should we seek after God? And then, how do we interact with the King of kings and Lord of lords? Well, we pick that up in verse 3. So, with this in mind, this is who our God is, and now David's kind of asking a couple of questions. In light of that and how grand and majestic and wonderful he is, who is going to ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who is going to stand in his holy place if he's so awesome and majestic? The answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Now there's a lot there. But the idea is that understanding the majesty of God should draw you to Him. It also naturally affects your posture and approach toward Him. So asking, whom exactly is the God I worship? There's the point in explaining who He is or focusing on His character. So that you could say, who exactly is this God that I worship? And asking that question even will influence your thinking. Because the answer to that question is, I worship the one who created me and whose very possession I am. So now, if I'm looking or I'm answering that question of, who is this God that I worship? Well, David's just given you a little bit there. He's the creator. He's the possessor of all. So now, as I think about it, who is this God that I worship? I worship the one who created me and whose very possession I am. Now, this recognition, it should promote a humble and reverent approach to him. As I, as I think about the God and who He is, this God that I worship, this God whose child I am, shouldn't that cause me to have humility? Couldn't, shouldn't that cause me to have a reverent awe and respect for God as I see He's the one who created all things and He owns all things? He, he's in possession of all things? And that's just two characteristics of God that David chose to pull out that would sort of lead to this question of how am I going to rightly relate to 
God, how, how am I going to approach God? Who, who, how, who is going to ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who is going to stand in his holy place when that's the kind of God we're dealing with? And so that's where David starts this idea that first we should have this humble and reverent approach to him and also this recognition should promote this desire to seek intimacy with such a God. If God is so great and he's allowing me or providing me with the opportunity to have a closeness to him and an intimacy to him, shouldn't I want that? Shouldn't I be overwhelmed with a sense of blessing that the God of the universe, the creator God, the one to whom all things are his possession, that that God wants to have a relationship with me, is inviting me to approach him and come nearer to him. He's inviting me to seek his face. He's inviting me to open the doors to the castle, open the doors to my life and allow him to be close, to to draw nearer to him to involve him, to include him, to trust him, to worship him, to lift him up, to serve him. That's the invitation that I'm being given. And in light of how amazing he is, shouldn't I desire that? Shouldn't I seek that, to have that intimacy? If God created mankind to enjoy fellowship with him, if he wants to have a relationship with you and he does, if he's a personal intimate God and he is, do you want to experience that? Shouldn't you want to? experience that? So then David tackles the practical reality that present present communion and intimate fellowship with God is conditioned on being right with God. So the reality is that God wants us to have a relationship with him. He's invited us to that. In fact, he's created us for that. But there's a condition to that. In the sense that to have present communion and to have present intimacy or intimate fellowship with God, it's conditioned on what? It's conditioned on being right with God. Because in terms of breakdowns in the relationship, the barriers of selfishness, rebellion, rejection, the barrier of being occupied with a mindset and then the behavior and thinking that goes along with that mindset that is in opposition to God, that kind of a mindset can at the same time experience the intimate fellowship that God wants to have with us. And if you want to have lots of discussion about that general idea that if we're not right with God, if we're not saying the same things as God, if we're not seeking after God and desiring to have that relationship with Him, we're not trusting Him and allowing Him to make the changes necessary in our thinking and in our lives, we can't experience that intimate fellowship with God unless we allow Him to convince us to have a change of thinking, a change of dependence, a change of focus, so that we can be in a place where then we can enjoy that closeness and that intimacy and that fellowship that God wants to have with us. And so we went through the book of 1 John, which was a very detailed explanation of that general principle that we cannot experience fellowship with God at the same time we're pursuing our own things. At the same time, we're operating in rebellion and rejection of Him. That we have to get to a place where we desire and we want and we're, and we're disposed favorably toward Him and His leading and His direction for our lives before we can experience that intimacy and that fellowship and that relationship with Him that He wants to have with us. So there's a lot of ways to picture it, but the idea is that am I right with God? Well, who can make me right with God? Well, he's made me right positionally, but then in the sense of the familial relational sense, who can put me in good standing with God where there's no barriers or there's nothing interfering with that? 
ultimately me trusting God, getting my eyes off myself, changing my mind, changing my thinking, so that instead of opposing God, I'm actually seeking God's face. I'm desiring that. I'm wanting that intimacy. Now, does he want that intimacy too? Yes, his word says so. So if he wants that intimacy and he never changes, that's never the factor. He's always seeking that. So the moment then my thinking aligns with his and I'm now thinking, I'm thinking the same thing as him, I'm agreeing with him, but I'm wanting the same thing he wants, that second I'm now experiencing as a practical reality, as a present state of being, I'm experiencing that relational closeness and intimacy that God has wanted with me all along and wants to continue to have with me and wants to always have with me. And so that's what David is getting at. That's the solution or the answer to this. Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Well, the question is intended to prompt consideration of the thinking and corresponding behavior needed in order to enjoy present fellowship with God. How do you get right with God? Or what describes one who is right with God? So then the answer now comes in verse 4. The answer comes in verse 4. Who is, what describes the kind of person whose thinking and then behavior signifies that he's in a place of being right with God? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. See, his motives are to seek after God. His motive is, his desire is to seek God's face, not to promote himself. That person also has not lifted up his soul to an idol. You can't presently be offering your soul up to some other kind of a God in your life and at the same time be recognizing God's preeminence, God's exclusive being the only God, and there's none like me. I am God alone, the only one. You can't be doing that and recognizing His place of authority and and sovereignty, and, and at the same time be offering yourself up or offering your thinking or offering your soul, it says, offering that up to worship something else or someone else in your life, So, that person who's able to be in God's presence or to experience that fellowship with God is the person who is not presently lifting up his soul to some other idol. Now, that person is also not somebody who is sworn deceitfully. You can't be deceived and at the same time be in a place where you're right with God and that you're agreeing with God and you're being led and directed by God. He's not the author of confusion or deceit. He's the author of truth. He's the one that leads us in the right ways. We saw that in Psalm 23 when we went through that study. Now, we we skipped over it here in our insights and psalm study because we spent so much time on it. But it says, he leads me in the paths of righteousness. He's the one who directs me in what is right. So I can't be operating in deceit, self-deception, or being deceived by others. I can't be doing that and at the same time be climbing the mountain of the Lord, be standing in His holy place. Both references, symbolically and even through the picture of the temple or the tabernacle, pictures of approaching God on a personal and intimate kind of a basis. Can't be doing it while these things are defining my life or true or characterizing my life. So David is referring to this present reality or mindset Now, what he's not referring to, he's not referring to these things are never present in your life or never have been present in your life or couldn't be present in your life. If that was the case, which of these these things would anybody be innocent of in terms of none of these things ever happen? You never had unclean hands. Was that that always true of David? 
Did David always have a pure heart? No, why would he have to tell God to search his heart and, and reveal the wickedness that's in him if he thought he was pure all of the time? Now, did David think he couldn't have access to God? No, he realized he couldn't have that intimacy of relationship and fellowship with God while at the same time he was in a place where he had unclean hands and an unpure heart. Now, how about lifting up your soul to an idol? Worshiping and preferring and putting something in a place of preeminence above, above God. Was David having the posture here that, that saying he never did that or wouldn't ever do that or couldn't ever do that? Just learn more about his story, right? And you'll know that that's not true. How about being deceitful? Did, it, did David ever engage in that kind of behavior? Have that something that was true in his life? What was his, did he ever disclose his reasons for having Uriah put into the very point of the battle so that he'd be killed? Was that honest and honesty and truth there? So that's not the point. And, and I know some people kind of, they look at this in a very legalistic way where they're focused on, I have to make my life look like this. God makes your life look like this while you're enjoying him. That's not the point of this passage at all. The point of the passage is the one that is seeking God's face. Do you have that desire? Now, what are the things that are true of the one who's presently seeking God's face? He's not caught up in all this. Why? Because his thinking is focused on the Lord and wanting to have a right relationship with the Lord, wanting to enjoy the Lord, which is exactly what the Lord wants. And so then what happens? You get to enjoy it in those moments. Are you in, are you in a place where, like, I'd like to enjoy the Lord? I hope so. I see the value in walking with the Lord, involving Him in my life, including Him in my life. I see the joy that, the contentment, the purpose, the direction that can come with that. Okay. But then you might say, but I'm not, I'm not experiencing that like I want to. So then the issue isn't desire. It sounds like you desire to seek the Lord's face. So then what does the prayer need to be? Lord, show that to me. I want that. Show me how I can keep my focus on you, how I can get, keep my gaze fixed on you, how I cannot be distracted by all of these things that continue to distract me, how I can in a practical way, in a day-to-day -day way, enjoy just including you in my life, involving you in my life, drawing nearer to you, seeking your face in a practical way throughout my day where I'm seeking you out. I'm not wanting to distance myself from you or leave you behind. Now, what is the result of seeking God on his terms? What is the result of seeking God on his terms? Read verse 5. This person, this person that is seeking God's face, it's characterized by these things in verse 4 that we just talked about, not because those are the focus, but because those are true of one who's being directed by God, one, who's, one who God is the one undertaking in his life to give him perspective. Verse 5 says what's going to be true if, that's, if you're enjoying that relationship with God. That person shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The focus here is on a walk of faith. David's already a man of faith. This isn't even talking about salvation from the penalty of sin. This is talking about how we need periodic cleansing in our lives. We need to be made right or put right. 
God puts us right, provides us salvation in this ongoing battle that we're in, in terms of this battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, the spiritual battle that's raging, is we have victory and salvation as we draw near to the Lord and we experience His presence. We experience that intimacy of closeness in fellowship with Him. So he shall receive blessing from the Lord. What's the primary focus of that blessing? Financial blessing? Now it could be, but the primary focus is, of course, spiritual blessings. The blessings that come from having, enjoying this intimate, present walk with the Lord, this walk of faith. How, how that will fuel my soul. How that will uplift my soul, how that will minister to my soul. Now, in the context of even the covenantal relationship that God had with the nation of Israel, was there some physical blessing associated with trusting God, following after God, believing, believing God? Yes, but is that the focus? No, it's not the focus of the Bible either. focus of the Bible is our spiritual well-being is connected to our willingness to give up on ourselves and to trust God to undertake in our lives to bring about change and to bring about a relationship that we can have with Him where we're dependent on Him to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's the message or the focus. That I would thrive spiritually when I'm connected intimately to the one who created me and the one who owns me in the context of what David has brought out here in this psalm. So there we have a right relationship with God, their Savior. I like how that sounds. We receive the Lord's blessing and a right relationship with God, their Savior. That's what our righteousness is talking about, this right relationship. Now we're going to have a summary statement in verse 6. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Now, if you went and looked at, say, 10 different English translations, most of them, don't, they don't, they're not worded this way. The idea is more, such is true of all those who seek him, who seek your face. They benefit from it. That's the idea. Such is true, what is true? They receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of their salvation. Such is true of all those who seek Him, who seek your face. The desire to seek God's face is not some type of forced, externally driven response, though. I hope you see that. The desire to seek God's face is not some sort of forced, externally driven response, but rather it's an internal heart response to really knowing and seeing God. And so that's why David started with that. As I know him and I see him, I have this heart response that says, I want to seek your face. Now, when you think about knowing and seeing God, of course, it includes understanding who God is. He's the creator. He's the owner. He's the ruler. He's the enabler. He's the provider. He's the sustainer. He's the rescuer. And as you see more about who God is, all those different facets to him, then it and you have a greater understanding of that, then it produces this internal heart response of faith as you then want to know him more. You want to seek his face more. Then what else do you need to understand? 
not just who he is, but you also have to be reminded of his desire to relate intimately with you, which has been brought out even here tonight. And then you have to be reminded of, or you should understand, his loving and gracious disposition toward you. And all of those things would cause you to seek his face. When that is true, such is true of all those who seek him who seek your face, they receive, you're blessed. You receive the Lord's blessing. You have that right relationship with God, your Savior. You get to enjoy that in time, not looking forward to enjoying it one day. You get to enjoy it right now in time. And this involves mental movement driven by a positive volitional response. This desire to seek your face, to seek his face. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Most of you know this verse, but just to wake us up a a touch here. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We're talking about mental movement. Mental movement that is driven by a positive volitional response to seek God's face. Well, here's another way of describing that. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now, how is that response of faith described, though? For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God's not forcing you to seek his face. God's not forcing you to have a desire to have that intimate relationship with him. He's telling you that you'll be blessed in doing so, but he's not forcing you to do it. There's where your volition comes into it. God is available. He's even created you with that purpose in mind. He's wanting that. He's desiring that. He's trying to point you in that direction or convince you that this is worthwhile. This relationship with him is all that should matter or should at least matter first. Seek you first, God. I'm going to seek you first and then everything else. But it involves mental movement. He who comes, see the movement there? He who comes to God. Mentally, I have to direct my focus and my gaze and my trust to him because I believe in him. It all comes back to faith. Am I convinced to put my trust in him? Now, one example of those seeking God is said to be or should have been Israel. And that's where you you see that phrase about Jacob. This is Jacob, meaning Jacob, the nation of Israel, the chosen people, were this should have been true of them. They should have been an example of. So such is true of all those who seek him, which is exemplified by Israel is the idea. That should be true of them. It should have been true of them. And you, you see or you remember maybe God's covenant relationship with Israel, we talk about it, but you have this phrase, I shall be or I will be their God and they shall be my people. This personal relationship with God. Genesis seventeen seven, when God is talking to Abraham, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants and you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Meaning the only way this is going to work is if you're walking by faith, a faith response and a faith relationship with me. That's the only way that this will work. That's my objective, is that you would be examples to others, even other nations, you'd be examples to them of this walk of faith, these these people who are 
convinced that it's, God is worth trusting. And they're convinced about that based on having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, having seen what he did with the Red Sea, having seen their clothes never wear out, their sandals never run out, wear out, manna come from heaven, water come from rocks, having seen the victory over giants, having seen him provide a land, a land that was filled with or flowing with milk and honey, a land that was filled with cities that were fortified that they never built and wells that were there with fresh water that they never dug and vineyards that were there that they never planted, seeing God's provision in their lives, that they would, they would be so enamored by that and convinced of God's love and care and compassion and grace toward them that they would be testimonies of God's goodness as they would enjoy that practical daily walk of faith with him. So that's what we're talking about when to be God to you, a real and personal God, not some fake idol that could never save, but the God who saves that you'll be my God and they'll be my people. And there's variations of that phrase, I will be their God and they shall be my people, uh, found 28 times in the Old Testament as I was looking at that. So there's, that's where Jacob or Israel is set up as the example of those who seek him and who seek your face. They're, they're being laid out as an example of that. Now, were they ever a very good example of that? Not really. The question is, are we ever really good examples of that as those who seek his face? Should we be? We should be, just like they should have been. But they, they weren't necessarily. Now we end these last verses here. The idea is if you're convinced of all of this, you see who he is. You see how he should be re- approached. You see that you have to have the right posture and mentality of trusting him and getting your gaze fixed on him and setting aside this other stuff that would interfere or, or would inhibit or prevent that right relationship, that active daily walk with you that he wants to have, that intimate fellowship. If you see all that, then what should your response be? Your response should be to open the gates of your life and let him in. Open the doors, open the gates, and let him in. Let's read verses 7 through 10. So there's a pause here in the poem. We see this word, Selah, Selah. I don't know how you pronounce that for sure. But we have a new kind of verse now. Now the last verse is 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. So lift up or open the gates and open the doors. And if that's true, what happens? And the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors. Is there value in repetition? Yes. What will the response then be? The king of glory shall come in. Now, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. That's the one we want to open the gates to. That's the one we want to open the doors to so that he can come in. So David uses a fortified city as a metaphor to illustrate a proper response or mentality to being convinced of these things that led up to here. So as I'm convinced that he's worth drawing near to, that I should be seeking his face, that I should be wanting to live life with him because we started out, he's such an awesome God. He's such an amazing God. So if that's true, then just like a fortified city as a royalty would be coming, as somebody of prominence would be coming, this could be picturing Jerusalem, but there's some dispute about that. But in any event, you have this fortified city as the king is approaching. 
if you're convinced of the goodness of the king, you're convinced he's on your side, you're convinced he wants what's best for you, what is the response that you should have? Get the guys to open up the gates. Open up the doors so that he can come in. And it's such a beautiful picture because you have this idea, what is going to cause you to do that? You see how it says, lift up your heads? Lift up your heads. It says it twice, lift up your heads. Because when we're struggling, what's the problem? Where, where are we looking? Down, all around, but where are we not looking? We're not looking up. So look up, this is, that's a, it's trying to bring out or picture the idea of turning our focus and attention and our trust, turning in faith, I would say is a good way to picture that. We're going to turn in faith as we look up to who? The creator, the one who possesses all things, then the sustainer, provider, on and on you could go. Who is your God? Look up to him. And then what comes along with that? Then open up the gates and doors. It's, it's a symbolic. I open the gates and doors by looking to him. That's how I open the gates and doors of my life. And it's this picture of faith, dependence. It's this picture of seeking God. It's this picture of welcoming God into, into my life. Now, why do you need to do this? Or what is the intended benefit of this? Well, you see it twice. You see it twice. If you do that, then what happens? The king of glory shall come in. Not might come in, shall come in. That's what the king of glory is wanting that openness. He's wanting you to allow him in your life. He's wanting you to draw near. He's wanting you to seek his face. When that's true, he automatically is going to respond by coming in. The king of glory shall come in. Now, why should you let him in? What benefit could he be to you? Well, as you look at 8 through 10, you'll see some phrases that we'll end with. But one is, <laughs> he's, how is he described? Look how he's described. Why would he be worth having in your city? Why, why would he be worth having in your life? Well, he's described as the Lord, strong and mighty. He's described as the Lord, mighty or invincible is that word, invincible in battle. He's the kind of God who's invincible. He's described as he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts in verse 10, which more easily understood, he is the Lord of or the captain of heaven's armies. He's the captain of heaven's armies and he's standing outside your city. But what's in the way? Well, the door's closed. The gate's, gate's closed. Does he want to come in? Yeah, he will come in. How do you get him in? Look up. Look up. Start trusting him. Have that desire to seek his face. So we have our title, Seeking Your Face. And as you think about it, the Lord Almighty, the captain of heaven's armies, the creator God wants to have a personal relationship with you. Jot that down across the front of your mind and then put an exclamation point after it and say, I don't know how that could be, but yet scripture says that's true. The creator God, the Lord Almighty, wants to have a personal relationship with you. So the question that David brings out here in Psalm 24 is, are you seeking his face? Are you seeking his face? Are you willing to open the gates and doors and let him in? And consider 
now that we know more about who he is or as I learn more about who he is, consider how nonsensical it is to keep him out. Consider all the things you could use a hand with. You have a strong and mighty, invincible God who is the captain of heaven's army at the ready. And you're saying, I don't, I don't need your help. And he's saying, yeah, you do. Yes, you do. Haven't you seen this grease fire that you're making in your life? Haven't you seen the wreckage and the carnage? Isn't enough enough? Aren't you going to let me in to help? He's a very present help in time of need, but he doesn't force himself on us. So, may every believer be convinced. May every believer be persuaded to seek him, to trust him, and to let him in. That's what would make more sense. May that be the prayer for your life and even be the prayer for my life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could spend in your word. Thank you for this encouraging reminder from Psalm 24 about seeking your face and how important it is to have that positive volitional response to you where we want to live life with you, include you, and let you in. We want to be in a place where we're ascending into the hill of the Lord and we're standing in your holy place. Help us to see that we can't do that and serve ourselves and be captivated by the world and live for ourselves or, or live in the world as, or as directed by the thinking of the world and at the same time be experiencing that victory and that life and that peace and, that, and all the blessings that you want to have for us in time. That we would see it's, it's got to be one or the other and that we would make the right choice to get our eyes focused and fixed on you and look up to you so that we would then have this posture where we're going through life seeking after your face, wanting to be near you. Pray that you could make that true of all of us and convince us that that's the only, that represents the only life worth living. In Jesus' name, amen.